You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good evening. If you turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 19, thank you for bearing with me today with the rough voice. I think I had some improvement this afternoon, so uh, hopefully it won't be as arduous as it was this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 26 tonight in one of the darker chapters in the Bible. There's some dark chapters in Genesis. Genesis 38 is a dark chapter, but this is one of the darker chapters. But remember, anytime we read about judgment, it pales a comparison to the judgment that Jesus himself experienced on the cross. And it pales a comparison to the judgment that awaits the living and the dead in Christ's return. These are just pale uh, types and foreshadowings of that day, but they should sober us all. Let's pray and ask the Lord to give us eyes to see what he would have us see as he inspired Moses to write this text. Father, you are the ancient of days, and we come to you through the Son of Man uh, who has made us fit to come into your presence through his all-sufficient work and by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, by the Holy Spirit tonight, we pray that you'd grant us illumination on this passage. There was a reason you inspired Moses to write this. And Lord, I pray that reason would come to bear tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you had a chance to preach the gospel or to to stand before a room full of full professors at Yale or Princeton or Harvard, what would you emphasize? Would you emphasize the final judgment. Well, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul emphasized at the Areopagus. And I have stood there at the Areopagus in in Athens as he stood before the esteemed philosophers of the day. And here's what he told them. And it may go counter to what we would tend to think a person would say if he had a platform before the, the, the philosophers of that day. God has fixed a day, Acts 17, 31, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He had one shot at the philosophers. That's what he preached. And then a few years later, lest we think Paul may have regretted that, he stands before Felix who had been Pontius Pilate's successor as governor of Judea. So he is in prison under Felix. And so he is bound to to Felix. Felix has his well-being in his hands. But when given the opportunity to speak to Felix, what does he say? Acts 24, 25 tells us he reasoned about righteousness and self-control. And the coming judgment. 
Now, why would he do that? Well, for one, there is no understanding the gospel without understanding judgment, that our sins deserve judgment. But secondly, every human being hurdles day by day towards this coming day. You could say that day of judgment is our defining moment of our existence. The Bible's description of judgment is eye-opening. We could spend the whole night just quoting verses. Let me just give you one. In Psalm 96, verse 13, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. So his standard will be his righteousness in that day. He will not grade on a curve. He will judge by his own standard of righteousness and his own faithfulness. Faithfulness to his name, faithfulness to his person, his character, but also faithfulness to his promises to save sinners. So how can he be faithful to his character and yet save sinners? Well, we know it will come through a substitute. But P.T. Forsyth writes this, the question of judgment is the central question in religion. How shall I stand before my judge? The question is not about our views, nor is it about our subjective state. How do I feel? Our objective religion, how do I stand? That's the issue. In my doctoral, doctoral program, I had two and a half years of seminars and colloquiums. But everything was gearing towards the final comprehensive exam. The one who wrote my exam questions was a man named R. Albert Moeller. And so everything I did for two and a half years was informed by that day of judgment, the day of exams. In fact, I took those exams two weeks after Heather gave birth to Seth. I'm ashamed to say this, but as she is laying there in labor pains, I've got my notes out. <laughs> because everything was defined by that coming day of judgment. The pressure was off the charts. Now, if the outcome of the final judgment is eternally more important than a school grade, why don't we talk about it more? Why don't we hear about it more? Well, texts like Genesis 19 give us accountability to talk about it. In fact, for the rest of Scripture, from the Old Testament on into the New Testament, the judgment we see at Sodom and Gomorrah becomes the paradigm for all judgments. Let me give you one example. 2 Peter 2, verse 6. By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example. So you see here, this is an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly in that day, that day of judgment. So though this judgment happened in time and space in history, Many, many centuries ago, 
it still has relevance to us as an example of what is going to happen. Now, as we come to our text tonight, uh, we, we have seen, we saw last week that the inspection by the angels is now complete. They've gone into Sodom and the, the wickedness that we have read about since Genesis 13 has been verified. Uh, the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are guilty in toto of everything that's been said about them. And this was concern, confirmed when we saw the men of, of Sodom, both young and old, come to Lot's house to rape the two men that he is hosting that we know to be angels. Now it's time for judgment. But even in this judgment, we see God's grace in judgment. Look with me in verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, now we know these are two angels, but one thing that angels have a capacity to do, they are spiritual beings, they have a capacity in God's providence to, to come and put on human form. The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, I want you to note that the desire of these angels, even in a mission of judgment, is for sinners to be saved because they're on the same page with God. And don't lose sight of the fact that the Lord uses family relationships to draw people. In fact, as important as it is for you to go to work tomorrow and evangelize your coworkers, as, it, as important it is to go out and evangelize in the, in, the, in the sphere of influence that God has placed you, the most effective arm of evangelism is the home. It's always been the case. The primary arm of evangelism is moms and dads and grandmoms and granddads passing the gospel baton to their children. And so that was to be Lot's responsibility. But it turns out that Lot, though a believer, and we know he's a believer because in 2 Peter, he's, he's called righteous three times. He has so compromised in his family relationships that he did not have a spiritual platform with them. What a tragic place to be. And again, Peter's writing this as an example to us. This means we could fall prey to that as well. Look with me in verse 14. It's one of the most haunting verses here. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law. So they were sons-in-law by betrothal. They weren't yet married, but in the ancient Near East, it had the same status as married. Like when Joseph uh, was betrothed to Mary. And so he went to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed 
to his sons-in-law to be jesting. That is haunting. Jesting here is the same word that was used for Sarah when she laughed when God promised that she would bear a child at old age. So Sarah laughed at the promise of divine grace. And here, Lot's sons-in-laws are jesting, laughing at the, the idea of coming judgment. Lot evidently has never spoken to his sons-in-law about coming judgment. When they planned to marry his daughters, evidently he did not talk to them about ultimate things. Or maybe he just lacked gravity. Like the guy who's always joking about everything. You can't take anything he says seriously. It reminds me of a little different context, but a few years ago, John Piper spoke at a, um, at a biblical counseling conference and he gets up in the pulpit and he gets vulnerable and he, and he is, he's dead serious and he, and he begins to share some of his concerns and you hear it on the audio. Every time he shares a concern or a struggle that he has, it sounds like a laugh track. The people in the audience are laughing. Why? Because they've been conditioned by their preachers to laugh at everything because their preachers evidently are a bunch of comedians. Well, this appears to be the case here. Lot was just one big comedian with his sons-in-law. Nothing wrong with being witty. But if that's all you are, he's missed a, a significant opportunity and responsibility with them. Maybe his relationship with them was, like so often is the case with men, a superficial relationship. Maybe he had just been so worldly they could not take what he said very seriously. They thought he was jesting. Verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Again, a sobering line here, verse 16. But he lingered. Judgment's falling, judgment's coming. And Lot lingered. So the men, that is the angels, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. What that line tells us is that he didn't deserve this. He deserved just to be swept up. This is the mercy of God. So he, he was merciful to him and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. Now that word escape, <clears throat> we're going to see five times in verses 17 to 22. 
But of note here, even after the warning, Lot lingers. And it wasn't because he didn't believe judgment was coming. He's a believer. Believers know when God says judgment's coming, they believe it. But it, it appears that even though he knew it was coming, his heart is still wrapped up in Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, we see it even in his request not to go all the way to the mountains, but to stop in a place called Zor. Lot's heart has been compromised with the world. That's what appears to be communicated here. He's compromised. He's worldly. Uh, his, 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 his affections have been set on things below, not on things above. He has been striving after the wind, vanity of vanity, for too many years. And so the angels literally have to grab him by the arms and the legs and drag him. Well, notice in verse 18, Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. We're not sure why Lot is negotiating with the angels. And we don't know exactly why. Uh, he, he wants to go to Zor. He, he says it's because it's a little place. But most scholars believe that Zor was close enough to Z Sodom that he could have his cake and eat it too. He could, he could be delivered from judgment and still be close to the place where his heart and affections was set. But notice, he is negotiating with these angels, with these rescuers, um, with his family's lives at stake. But the essence of the prayer here is that he is insisting on his own way. He wants deliverance on his terms. That's the human way. Do you know that the most common song that is played at funerals is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way? And that's supposed to be a good thing. Well, we see it here with Lot. And yet, we see the mercy and the long-suffering of God in the answer to Lot's request. Verse 21, he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that city was called Zor. So it's tempting for us to think that, that we're better than Lot. But actually, what Moses wants us to see, and remember his original audience, he's, a, he's writing to people who've been um, redeemed out of Egypt, but they're making their way through the wilderness into their inheritance. Um, we're in the same place uh, in a very real sense. We've been redeemed but we still await our inheritance. We're in the wilderness years 
And he wants us to see we're a whole lot more like light than we care to admit. So the question is, are we any less compromised than light? Are we less attached to the things of this world than light? You know, we're not saved because we're wiser than anyone else or we're better than anyone else or holier than anyone else. We're not saved because God just perceives us as, as superior or he considers us to be above the mean, above the average of, of people. You know, like Lot, we don't even have the strength to escape right, right? That truly is where we are. It's only by God's grace extended to us by his son, his, his mediator, that we even have the strength to, to be saved. That's, that's what we see here. This is, this is us looking in the mirror. So we see God's grace even in the midst of the judgment. We see light doesn't deserve this. And we're supposed to say to ourselves, neither do I. I'm no better than the people who were judged except for the grace of God. Well, that brings us to the second part of this passage, the last part of this passage. Starting in verse 23 to the end of 26, we see God's justice in judgment. We've seen God's grace in judgment. We see God's justice in judgment. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Just as a side here, and we don't need to miss this, do you see a plurality here in the Godhead? Long before the doctrine of the Trinity was laid out at Nicene Constantinople, we see plurality in the Godhead right here. The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah Sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. That's just beautiful language here. And so even here we're seeing, though there's only one God, there's a plurality in the Godhead. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Horrible judgment. But many people think that the New Testament God is more merciful, more gracious, and less judgmental and harsh than the God of the Old Testament. But that is not the case. In fact, we would not use the word harsh, but we would say that the judgment we read about in the New Testament is even more severe than what we read here. This is a physical judgment. What we see on the cross is not only a physical judgment, it's a spiritual judgment as, as the Son of God actually propitiates God's wrath. He satisfies God's wrath in his sufferings and death on the cross. But that in itself is a foreshadowing of what every individual will experience for all eternity if they do not receive God's only provision 
for their salvation. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this case, Lot and his family, yes, God's deliverance is all of grace, but they have responsibility. Our responsibility is to receive God's provision, and here we see they were not to look back. Verse 26, last verse of our, of our passage tonight. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, we don't know exactly how this happened or what that actually looked like, but as Gordon Wynnum, an Old Testament scholar, points out, the Dead Sea region today still reeks of, of, of sulfur. I've been there. It smells like sulfur. And the strange rock formations there at the Dead Sea recall what happened to Lot's wife, who was even more attached to Sodom than Lot was. Turns out she was not even a believer. He was married to an unbeliever. But most scholars today believe that the Dead Sea is the product of the judgment on, on Sodom and Gomorrah. If you go there today, you know it's almost impossible to drown in the Dead Sea because it's so full of salt, like 33%. The water's 33% salt. If you go to the Pacific Ocean, I think it's 3%, and the Atlantic Ocean is 4% salt. The Dead Sea is 33% salt. You just float there. It's salt. And, and most scholars believe today that is a byproduct of the judgment that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. But in the New Testament, Jesus uses Lot's wife as a warning against worldliness. He will say in one of the shortest sermons you'll read ever in the Bible, remember, Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. So she was caught between two desires and... <clears throat> She met only judgment, even though she had mercy inside. Here's what Jesus said in, in Luke 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, <clears throat> just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking. They were just doing life, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when the Lord, or, the, or when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Let me just say this. Jesus believed there was a literal Sodom and Gomorrah where judgment fell. Okay, And so if, if some liberal wants to take a higher uh, interpretation than Jesus, I just say beware, okay? So here we see Jesus, um, his view of Genesis in this particular passage. He sees it as authoritative, all right? And so it says, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed, on that day. 
Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. So it appears that's what Lot was, or Lot's wife was doing. Looking back, she was seeking to preserve her life. He says, but whoever loses his life will keep it. What does he mean by that? Whoever gives his life away to Jesus in repentance and faith will keep it. You cannot keep one foot in Sodom and be saved. Jonathan Edwards comments on Christ's words here. While you are out of Christ, you are in Sodom. Sodom is the place of your nativity and the place where you have spent your lives. Remember Lot's wife. Remember what became of her. And I see it all the time. So I taught, as you know this, I repeat myself on these things, but I taught college for 15 years in Louisville. I spent six years in Tuscaloosa on a college campus. And I have now spent five years in Auburn on a college campus. And so 26 years of my life, I'm 55, half of my life has been spent in the college world. And one thing I see so often are young men and women in college who think they can have Jesus and Sodom as well. And Jesus is saying, remember Lot's wife. It's a sobering sermon that he preaches there. And so again, Peter tells us here, that this took place, 2 Peter 2, as an example. And in that regard, not only is it an example, it's a warning. Sodom reminds us of the sufferings of hell that await those who exchange the truth about God for a lie. As Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why God has preserved this judgment in Scripture as a grace warning to his people. It teaches us, among other things, after many warnings and after forbearance and long-suffering and patience, God's judgment will ultimately be abrupt. They were eating and drinking, they were marrying, they were buying, and then boom, judgment fell. That's how the judgment will be. Okay? One minute, things are going as normal, and then the hammer fell. Again, verse 24 is so sobering. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And so, God stays his hand of judgment for a time because he is patient with us, because he's gracious. But what we tend to do is confuse his long-suffering and his patience for indifference. He is not indifferent to our sin. And he's not oblivious. He's very aware of the compromises. In 2 Peter 3, 4 recites this common rebuttal, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? 
The reason they're asking is because it hasn't come yet. And so the, the waiting signals to them it's not gonna happen. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. <clears throat> so God's judgment is abrupt and it will be abrupt. Second, God's judgment will be intolerable. It will be intolerable for those who experience that judgment and that will be for eternity. I was speaking to a fellow the other night on, the, on, the, on Tumor's Corner and he said, I'm not atheist, I'm agnostic. I said, well, that makes you crazier than an atheist because you are holding out that there is a, the possibility of a God and yet you're indifferent to that reality. And I said, do you realize, and this is one thing you can't disagree with me on, you'll spend more time dead than alive. You may need to look into the things that await you after death. That judgment will be intolerable. It will be something that no words in the uh, human language can describe. Here it says fire and sulfur. And the reason fire and sulfur fell is because that's probably the most um, egregious and most sobering thing that we could think could happen. And yet that pales in comparison to what awaits those who will, who will spend eternity in hell. And then third, what makes this judgment so terrifying is its source. The judgment, notice again, is from God himself. And it appears that there's a plurality that is taking that is, that is actually pouring out the judgment, a plurality in the Godhead. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord. And so that's what makes the judgment so even more fearful. The source of the judgment is God himself. And this points to us to an even more severe punishment an even more severe uh, judgment that awaits. As Donald Gray Barnhouse once noted, the terrible thing about the doctrine of eternal punishment is that God runs hell and God will manage the lake of fire. And there can be no escape except as God has provided by means of the son, the one greater than Abraham. As we saw in Genesis 18, we're gonna pick up Abraham again next time. Abraham, all he could do was intercede, but the one greater than him will not only intercede, he will atone. And so this judgment that you and I deserve. We're no different than the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. We may not commit their particular sins, but we commit enough sins daily to warrant this and more. We have a savior who took the judgment and that's beyond anything we could ever fathom, but he took the judgment. It was more than physical death. 
we really don't understand all that took place on the cross. But God's wrath is actually being poured out on him. He's being punished for every sin ever committed by those who would trust in him. And then he was buried. And then he was raised. And in that resurrection, the judgment was reversed on the son and for all those who would trust in him. That's why it takes reflecting on the judgment to provoke real love for what Jesus Christ did for us. As Adam and the musicians come forward, one of the reasons corporate worship is so important is because we grow dull during the week if we're not careful. The heart is prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. We're prone to leave the God I love. And, and, and texts like this remind us, even in the midst of judgment, that we have a Savior that has saved us from our greatest problem, the judgment of God. But maybe tonight you realize, if, I, if judgment were to fall tonight, I would stand with the, the people of Sodom. I would stand with Lot's wife. My feet are in Sodom. My affections are there. And I don't want to be there. I want to come to the Savior tonight. And you can if you'll repent of that and come to Jesus who took the judgment for sinners. Won't you come tonight as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.